Hi friends, welcome to our Sabbath School Study Hour here at the Granite Bay Hilltop Seventh-day Adventist Church in the greater Sacramento area. Thank you for spending your time with us, investing your time in getting to know God more into diving deep into His Word. This quarter we're studying from the book of Psalms. Today we'll be studying from lesson number nine, which has the title, Blessed is He Who Comes in the Name of the Lord. But before we start, I'd like to invite you to take advantage of our free offer. It's called Hidden Truth, and it will help you in the study of this lesson. It will be a guide as you study what we're talking about. If you would like this free offer, you could call the number 866-788-3966 and you'll ask for the offer 832. If you're in continental North America and like a digital download, you could text SH109 to the number 40544 and uh, you'll be sent a digital download link. And if you're outside of uh, North America, if you're somewhere else in the world, you could go to study.aftv.org slash sh109 and you could also find a digital download link to uh, this lesson. And so take advantage of that. It's yours to help you study a little bit more. Before we go into our lesson, I'd like to invite you to say a word of prayer. So please, wherever you are, bow your head, close your eyes, and let's speak to the Lord. Dear Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for revealing yourself through the Bible, especially, Lord, in the book of Psalms, where we see so many similarities between what these authors are going through, what the psalmists are going through, and what Jesus Christ went through during his lifetime, Lord. So thank you for this insight. Allow us to extract meaning from these words, to extract um, understanding from what Jesus went through, Lord, so that we can apply that in our life and live a better life, more like Christ. Help us now, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I always study the book of Psalms, I appreciate the depth of what these authors are uh, writing about. The different circumstances, the different experiences of what they go through, the wars that they speak, um, the imagery that they bring, that they extract from what they are going through, through through their experiences in life, and how we can apply that not only to them, not only to us, but to what Jesus went through when he was alive. Friends, that means so much to us. You know, in theology, and I'd like to help you understand this before we actually go into the lesson, in the study of theology, there is this aspect called the census plenier. And the census plenier is this, it's this resource of prophetic study that allows us to understand the complete sense of the prophecy. So census plenier literally means the complete uh, meaning the complete sense of a given prophecy. And you'll see that in the Bible, there are several different kinds of prophecy. And basically, you can break it down to short-term, mid-term, and long-term prophecies. So short-term prophecies, you'll see that a lot in the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And basically, the short-term prophecies are what they're going through in the days in which they're living. The events that are unfolding, the geopolitical events, and, and that's what you find there in the, in the uh, minor prophets. Also, the uh, midterm or the, yeah, the, the midterm prophecies, they happen perhaps not in the day that the prophecy or the prophet is writing, but not that much longer after, perhaps a few years, perhaps a few decades, but they also, they're also not 
comparable to the long-term prophecies that oftentimes span centuries or even millennia. You'll find that mostly in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. But you will find slivers of long-term prophecies uh, elsewhere in the Bible. You'll see, for example, in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 17 and 21, you'll see that these uh, prophecies, they, they are given by Jesus Christ. They're found in the Gospels and they span millennia. And so uh, it, it's it's. A great thing to understand, it's, it's um, important when studying the Bible, that when you're looking at any given prophecy, there might be a second or even a third application of that prophecy. And so remember that when you're reading the book of Psalms, because that happens so much. We're reading what these uh, psalmists have written down. We're reading from their own life and their own feelings, their emotions, the things that they're going through. However, there is this transcendence to their prophecies, to their writings, to their songs, right? The songs here in Psalms that apply to Jesus's life. And that's why we find so many messianic psalms that not only apply to the prophet that is writing the psalm, the psalmist, but also to the life of Jesus Christ. And so keep attuned to that because you'll see these layers unraveling as we study these psalms. Our memory verse comes from, uh, comes from Psalm chapter 118, verse 22 and 23. And so that is the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So this is what we're talking about this week. This is the foundation. And of course, we know that Jesus is uh, Jesus is the application of this verse right here. He is the cornerstone that the, builder, that the builders rejected. And he is the one that became the chief cornerstone. Again, this was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And the more that we study, the more that we understand the depth of what's going on in these Psalms, the more beautiful Jesus will appear in our understanding of him in our Christian walk. Um, now, Going back to the beginning, to the introduction of our lesson this week, you see that Jesus is interwoven throughout the Psalms. We'll see that the applications of his life or the events of his life find themselves embedded in the study of the book of Psalms. We find this deep connection with the life and the ministry of Jesus. These ancient texts, they go beyond their immediate context and they reveal a magnificent prophetic vision that very delicately and intricately, intricately links to uh, the Messiah. And so again, try to notice this as we study these lessons. Not only do they speak of Jesus's divine attributes and his sonship, but also of his deep obedience, his zealous commitment to God's cause. So as we go through the Psalms that we'll be studying, you'll see that Throughout these Psalms, different parts, different moments, different perspectives of Jesus's life emerge in all of these studies. So the Psalms poetically narrate the future sufferings of Jesus. You remember that the book of Psalms finds itself in this section, this category of the biblical uh, canon, the biblical uh, chronology called the poetic books. And so there you'll find Job, you'll find Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. And truly the book of Psalms was the hymnal, the hymnal book of the children of Israel. And so it's, it's so appropriate that in these songs of praise, we find reference to the life of Jesus, several moments in his life, moments that Jesus himself later on quoted. And so I find that beautiful that while Jesus didn't quote from anyone except himself in the pages of the Old Testament and in the book of Psalms, we find several of those quotes. And so again, the Psalms poetically narrate the future sufferings of Jesus, echoing the betrayal, the agony that he would endure. 
And this foresight also extends to the triumphant aspects of Jesus' journey. The high moments, the glorious moments, his resurrection, his ascension, and the establishment of his eternal priesthood and his kingship. And so we'll get to that later on in the lesson. Now, what makes the book of Psalms in an even more compelling study is how they find their typological fulfillment in Jesus. So, for example, when you study Psalms such as Psalms 24, 45, 72, even 101, we find glimpses, we find little slivers of the ideal king and judge prefiguring his own and uh, judicial authority. So again, not only do you see the agony of Jesus, not only do you see the death of Jesus, but you find prefigured what kind of king he would be, what kind of judge that he would be. After all, friends, we can't believe that Jesus only died for us, but also that he lives for us and that today he's doing something for us. And so the question is, what is he doing? What are the implications of what he's doing? And you find that here also in the book of Psalms. So the prophetic layer of the Psalms, it deeply influences or it should deeply deeply influence our understanding of the New Testament. It provides a connecting bridge that links the Old Testament with the New Testament. The Old Testament expectations with the New Testament's reality, its fulfillment. And it offers us a bird's eye view of the biblical narrative. Now, there are many that would rather uh, cast aside, forget um, the, the, the Old Testament. There are, in it, or there is in the, the mainstream Christian world, this push to say that the Old Testament is invalid, that it's been canceled, that it's not really relevant to us anymore. We're under a new covenant and we are under, you know, the grace of God that is found in the New Testament and not the law, the legalistic view that is found in the old. Now, friends, that is absolutely, uh, that, that is absolute foolishness. After all, one reason, the first argument against that would be that Jesus Christ himself and the disciples and the church in the first century, they only had the Old Testament to rely on. They, they didn't have the New Testament. By the end of the first century, the New Testament was just a bunch of letters that were circulating uh, the, the Roman Empire, Asia Minor. But their Bible was the Old Testament. So when Jesus refers to scripture, when Jesus goes back to thus saith the Lord, who is he referring to? Where is he referring to? It's to the Old Testament. So how could the Old Testament not be relevant anymore? Not only this, but we find the several prophecies that indicate Jesus Christ's birth, life, and death. Where are they? Well, in the Old Testament, because you didn't have a New Testament yet. So you see that the Old Testament, it cannot be irrelevant. That would be foolishness. That would be starting a book at the end of it. You wouldn't understand so much. And so when we go, for example, to the book of Revelation, you'll see that out of, I believe, the 402 verses or 404 verses of the book of Revelation, something around 200, 200 I was studying this the other day, 278, if I'm not mistaken, are direct quotes of the Old Testament. Again, how could it be irrelevant? So you see that the Old Testament, it, it is full of references, full of, uh, of symbols that are essential to the understanding of the New Testament. So again, the Old Testament expectations is connected to the, the reality and the fulfillment of the New Testament. And that offers us a perspective, a grander understanding of the, the, the biblical uh, realities. And so 
keep that in mind as you study the book of Psalms. So as we dive deep here in the book of Psalms, I want to encourage you to view them as a foundational component of the Christian faith and theology. They're not mere poetic relics. All right, these aren't things from a bygone era that are not relevant anymore, as I've, I've just said. These aren't forgotten in time, but they're living testimonies of Jesus' life, of his work, of his mission, of everything that he accomplished. This book of Psalms, it is at the cornerstone of biblical Christian theology. It's an enduring legacy in the tapestry of salvation history. So we can't cast it aside and we can't just treat it as mere songs. These are foundational understandings of what Jesus did for us. The Psalms, friends, stand as a testimony to the continuity and to the depth of God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. It offers us a richer, more textured understanding of the Bible and its revelation of who Jesus is. So we'll see that as we move on. On Sunday's lesson, which has the title, The Divine Self-Sacrificing Shepherd, um, we'll find this, this, this depth of what it means that he was our, that he is our shepherd. And that he, not only he's a shepherd, but he is a self-sacrificing shepherd. In the Psalms, we find this rich uh, understanding of who Christ was and what, who he is for us, about his relationship with his, with his people. These texts include psalms, very famous psalms, such as, for example, Psalms chapter 23, chapter 28, verse 9, chapter 80, chapter 78, chapter 79, chapter 100. There are so many of these that give us even more perspectives. And this is what I love about the book of Psalms and really the Bible at large. But since we're studying Psalms, it also applies. Um, I think I've used this illustration here before, but I remember this one time where I went to the, the, the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in uh, Washington, D.C., and I was able to see the, the Hope Diamond. And at the time, it was the biggest diamond in the world. I don't really know if it's the biggest anymore, but at the time, it was the biggest diamond in the world. And on the display, there were several, several beams of light shining through the diamond. And from each of the, the different beams of light, you would see prisms coming out of the diamond with several brilliant colors, you know, yellow, blue, red, uh, beautiful colors. And when I look at scripture, and here, when I look at the book of Psalms, that's how I understand it. I understand this this view of Jesus as this multichromatic God, a God that when you look at him on, from one perspective, he appears to be one way. When you look at him from a different perspective, he appears to be a different way. And that is how beautiful, how diverse our God is in understanding. You can't limit God to one understanding. And that's why there are so many of these Psalms that they fill our understanding of who God is. And that's why I just mentioned all of these Psalms because they portray God as a shepherd who intimately cares and guides and and sustains his flock. That's the God that we're seeing here in this book of Psalms. There's this emphasis on the closeness, the dependency of his people on him. I don't know how many of you know sheep from, from close by. Um, I've never owned, you know, a sheep, uh, a lamb, a goat, but my uncle has a very big farm in Brazil, and oftentimes visiting him, I was able to be around, you know, these creatures. And I'll tell you something, they're not the smartest of creatures. Sheep are not very smart. And sometimes the shepherd has to hurt the sheep, hurt the lamb, so that it doesn't kill himself, itself. So it doesn't jump in a ditch. So it doesn't run off. So that it learns. And so here we see that this, this shepherd, 
He has to care for his flock, but sometimes that flock does go through the valley of the shadow. And so that's part of this understanding of his closeness, that he doesn't abandon us through the shadow, through the valley, but he walks through it with us. He traverses the shadow with us. That's one aspect of this closeness. And so this imagery not only reveals God as a nurturing and a protective shepherd, but also it underscores his ownership. He is the one that owns the flock. And so he has this vested interest in the well-being of the flock, of course. And that's rooted both, and we see this biblically, it's rooted both in uh, creation and in covenant. You see, the first description of God in the Bible is as him as the creator. Bereshit bara. Those are the first two words in the Hebrew Bible. Bereshit bara. In the beginning, God created. And this word bara, this verb, it indicates a form, a type of creation that can only be applied to the creator God. Because you see where humans, they can transform some things into other things. They can't call things into existence. They can't create out of nothing. Only God has that power. And so here, this closeness, this ownership, this intimacy, it comes from the fact that God not only transformed matter, he pulled that matter into existence in the creation of human beings. So that's the first element of it. But the second one, it's that it goes from creation to covenant. Because in the Bible, you'll see from chapter 1 through chapter 11, you'll see that three major uh, elements arise, which is God is the creator. But that creation is then hijacked by a conflict. It's the three C's. Creation, conflict, and covenant. So God created the world. The, the world fell into this conflict. And then God's covenant redeems the world from that conflict. And so God is our owner. He is our uh, uh, he is our shepherd, not only through creation, but also through covenant, because his plan to redeem us from the conflict, it was a, an intimate ordeal. It, he had to come down. He had to be the shepherd that was close, that was suffering with the flock, that suffered for the flock. And so that way, he is the divine self-sacrificing shepherd. This whole divine shepherd motif, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He fulfills what it means to be the divine shepherd. He's called the good shepherd in the New Testament. Friends, Jesus' teachings, particularly in John chapter 10, reveal a deep understanding of this role. You can't really miss it as you're reading scripture. He highlights this intimate bond between shepherd and sheep. And it's marked by a deep recognition and a responsiveness, responsiveness to the shepherd's voice. You'll see that with, uh, with, with flocks, the sheep, they come to recognize the voice of their shepherd. It's really interesting. If you see, there are several videos on the internet where you can see flocks that are basically combined. They're, they're in the same uh, corral. And when their shepherd calls them... Only his sheep come towards his voice. The other sheep that belong to some other shepherd, they stay behind. So this aspect of recognition, of recognizing the, the shepherd's voice, it's deeply embedded in what it means for him to be our shepherd. We need to grow to recognize his voice, to know his voice. How does that happen? Through study of scripture, through prayer, through contemplation of who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. And all of this is mentioned here in this week's lesson, in, uh, in Sunday's lesson. And so this idea of sacrificial leadership, of him not only being there with his sheep, but being there for his sheep, is further enriched by the paradox of the shepherd becoming the sacrificial lamb. Think about that. Here you don't have only a shepherd that loves, that cares, that guides, but you have a shepherd that becomes one of the sheep. So you see the paradox, the comparison. He's the shepherd, but he's also the lamb. 
Do you remember what I mentioned about the Bible giving us several different perspectives of who God is? You understand it and read it through one angle. You see this, another angle, you'll see that. So not only is he the shepherd, but he's also the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That's what we find in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'll give you something else that's extremely interesting. In scripture, not only is Jesus the, the shepherd, not only is he the lamb, but he is also the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So again, do you see the differences in perspectives in the book of Revelation? John hears the, vo the voice of a lion, but he, he sees a lamb. Again, do you see the comparisons? And so this is something that we have to kind of attune ourselves to as we read the Bible. Friends, the Bible needs to be studied. Not, it's not only devotional content. There's nothing wrong with reading the Bible devotionally. But what does it mean to study the Bible? It's to look at it, to analyze it, to categorize different elements of it. Because that way we can truly understand what God is saying, what he's revealing to us through scripture. Friends, Jesus' mission, it includes gathering his sheep from various folds into one united flock. So last quarter we were talking about the mission and that is a big part of this mission. It's of uniting all of his sheep under one flock. And it depicts this inclusivity and expansiveness of his care. Now, by that, I don't mean that we start embracing um, fallacies of belief or uh, wrong and incorrect beliefs as, as, you know, we all come under uh, one shepherd. But what that means is that God has a multitude, the great multitude, the book of Revelation calls them, that will come, that will leave this this false system of worship and that will come under the, the, the command, the guidance of the one shepherd, which is Jesus. So I hope you understand what I'm saying there. In practical terms, embracing Jesus as our good shepherd, it involves listening for and responding to his guidance. It means trusting in his provision and his protection and recognizing his ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. And friends, that's a hard element of the Christian life because we don't like to surrender. We don't like to submit. We don't want to have to depend. We like to have control. But when it comes to the Christian life and when it comes to this imagery of the flock and the shepherd, the sheep depend completely on the shepherd. And that's difficult for us. That's a hard thing to learn how to do. And so this message here from the book of Psalms, it calls for an active engagement with the teachings of Christ, allowing them to shape our daily lives, not only our intangible abstract beliefs, but in the day-to-day, -day, in the way that you walk, that you talk, that you deal with others, in the way that you uh, spend your money, in the way that you spend your time. All of these things need to be surrendered to the shepherd. Monday's lesson, moving on, it presents us the suffering Messiah. And so in the study of this topic, the suffering Messiah in Psalms, especially in Psalm chapter 22 and Psalm 118. So I'm not going to be able to read the Psalms because they are, they're quite big. The, the sections are quite big. I'm going to read a few of the quotes here. But I do encourage you to go back to the Sabbath school lesson and for you to study it. Don't depend just on videos or pastors. Go back to the lesson. Spend time in the word. Learn from the Lord. Pray. Uh, contemplate what these things mean. But on Monday's lesson, you'll see, especially Psalm 22 and 118, where we encounter this deep narrative of Jesus's treatment by those who he came to save. The Psalms poignantly describe the depths of his forgiveness for us and the depths of how forsaken he felt and the agony that he experienced 
a suffering that Jesus himself echoes on the cross of Calvary. Psalm 22 especially, this is a beautiful messianic psalm. And there's something here that is very, um, it, 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 it's, it reminds us of, uh, of, of a certain moment in scripture. It stands out as a direct messianic prophecy. And it captures in detail several different aspects and elements of the events of Jesus' death. Look at, for example, what, um, what we find here in verse 7 and verse 8, which says, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Friends, this is, this is being written about a thousand years before Jesus. Think about that. 900 years before Jesus. Think about this reality. Right? Because when we go to the Gospels, this is precisely what we see happening. These same words saying this. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The mockery, the derision. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. Remember when Jesus was thirsty on the cross? You have brought me to the dust of death. Verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Why would the psalmist write this down? If not as a direct messianic prophecy. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What happened? Friends, here again, this is a direct prophecy of exactly what would happen with Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 is a direct prophecy. Direct quotes of what was happening. I sometimes try to imagine the psalmist seeing these events. Because again, this is divine revelation. Imagine God revealing this to him. And the application in his own life. Why is he writing this? He's being shown it. The Psalms, this psalm, it illustrates not only the physical pain, but also the intense spiritual anguish of Jesus. Which is symbolized by his feelings of abandonment, even in his unbreakable unity with God the Father. So look, have you ever felt abandoned by God? Have you ever felt forsaken? Have you ever felt that your heart would melt like wax because of events in your life? This is comforting, friends, because not only do we go through these feelings and these moments, not only did the biblical characters like David and Abraham and, you know, the apostles, not only did they go through these things, Jesus went through this. So I want you to think about that. If even God himself was not spared of this kind of feeling, imagine us. You know, friends, several times in life we think, in several occasions, we think, well, why is this happening to me? That's not the question. The question truly is why not? Am I special somehow? Am I a VIP where, you know, nothing bad should happen to me? It happened to the patriarchs. It happened to the apostles. It happened to the son of God. Sometimes we cry out, where, where is God when my parents are suffering? When my family is without funds to uh, fulfill a dream or to pay for uh, rent or the mortgage? Where is God when I'm going through this disease and this condition? Where is God? Look, I've asked that question myself. But the answer to that question coming from scripture is God is in the same place that he was when Jesus was hanging on the cross of Calvary. When this was going through or when Jesus was going through this, 
You see, friends, the sentiment of the inexistence of God or the abandonment of God, it, it drowns in the tears of a God who does care. And that's what we find here. This suffering that's portrayed vividly and in vivid imagery, it reflects the cruelty and the animosity that Jesus felt in these moments. In contrast to his innocence, to his vulnerability, this is, again, the divine self-sacrificing shepherd. And remarkably, the very words of Psalm 22 were echoed by the crowd at the crucifixion, highlighting the fulfillment of the prophecy in the mockery in the division of his garments, of his clothes. Jesus owned nothing in this world. Not even his clothes, as we see here. But the narrative of the rejected Messiah turns victorious as he becomes the cornerstone of God's spiritual temple. Post-resurrection. Again, do you remember our memory verse? The transformation from suffering to triumph. It not only fulfills prophecies, but it also establishes Jesus Christ as the foundation of salvation. Because he lives, as the, as the hymn says, the old song says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And that's the beauty revealed here in these psalms. Friends, understanding Jesus' suffering and its significance in our redemption, it calls for a profound, a deep, transformative perspective in life. A transformation in how we view and engage with sin. Because sin is what did this. This disease, this virus that infects, that destroys, that separates. How then should we deal with it? when we contemplate this divine self-sacrificing shepherd. Recognizing that Jesus Christ bore the penalty as our substitute, something that we should go through. I'm, I'm, I'm reticent of using the word should, but that we were going to go through. I, um, I don't really believe that... Uh, not I believe, biblically, we didn't have a choice. We were born here. No one really asked me if I wanted to be born in the world of sin that we live in right now. But because I'm, I was born in it, I have to deal with it. And the truth is that being born in this world is being born with a death sentence. All of us will die. All of us will die. But here, Christ, he bears that weight, the weight of the eternal death. That's what the Bible is talking about. And that should fundamentally change our perspective, driving us away from sin and towards a life that honors his sacrifice. Tuesday's lesson continues the same topic where it gives us forever faithful to his covenant. So here we're not only talking about creation, we're not only talking about the conflict, about his death, but we're also talking about his covenant, his promises. Because after all, friends, everything here has to do with his promises to us. Right? It doesn't have to do with your promises because our promises as humans, they're fallible. <laughs> they, they, they're broken super easy. Have you ever broken a promise? Have you ever had a promise being broken to you? That happens. We're human. But here we find that everything in Scripture revolves around the promises that God makes to us because he does not break his promises. And so Tuesday's lesson, it revolves around Psalm chapter 89 and Psalm 132. If you can, go and read it. 
uh, and we gain this deep insight into the nature of God's promises, especially the Davidic covenant, the covenant that was revealed to David and revealed by David. This covenant, which is highlighted here in the book of Psalms, it asserts a lasting commitment from God to David's lineage and the prosperity of his people contingent on the king's fidelity to God. So since we live in, in a time where we, by hindsight, can see exactly what happened, we know that this covenant was, um, it, was uh, it wasn't fulfilled, the terms of this covenant weren't fulfilled by the human counterpart. God extended these covenants to David, but his lineage, they didn't fulfill it. And so all of the promises of this covenant are then passed. They're transferred over to the new Israel. When we go into the New Testament, who is the new Israel? It's the church. But here we see this covenant being given to David. But human imperfections, even among the devoted kings, like David, it casts doubt on the stability of this covenant. Again, not because of God, but because of the human counterpart. And so God's wrath, as described in Psalms, such as Psalm 38 and Psalm 74, it serves as a reminder of the consequences of straying from his commandments. But one important thing to remember here in, when it comes to understanding God's wrath is that this wrath, it has nothing to do with explosive outbursts of temperament. Friends, God is not losing his temper here. He's not throwing a temper tantrum as though God were some kind of petulant child that would just throw himself on the ground and would just throw this temper tantrum with his uh, divine power. That's not what we find in the Bible. God doesn't process emotion as we do, friends. We have to be very careful when it comes to understanding God because sometimes we tend to humanify God way too much. And we see God as this, you know, the big guy up there, you know, it doesn't work that way. We're talking about the ultimate being the ultimate power in the universe, the one who created laws such as gravity, thermodynamics, aerodynamics, quantum mechanics, that is the God that we're dealing with here. And we tend to forget that. God doesn't process emotion as we do. And so be careful in the way that you understand the, the, the wrath of God. You see, God's wrath is not an emotional outburst like our human anger. It's a result of his holy character. And so there are words in theology that describe this contrast. And these two words are affectus and effectus. So one with A and one with E. Affectus has to do with, it, it's, it's, it has to do with passion, with emotion, right? That's how we process emotion, not God. God processes emotion through effectus. It's an effect, right? We're dealing with a force, the ultimate force of the universe. Not only is God a personable being, not only does he have a personality, but God is a force. He has, he, out of him are derived the laws of nature, as I've already said. And so as the source of the universe, when dealing with God, you have to be uh, careful in your understanding of him because God's wrath is understood as an effect of his holy character. When we unplug ourselves from the source of life, there's a consequence to that. You know, if you, you know, unplug a phone from, you know, the charger, it's going to last for a little while, but ultimately it's going to what? How do we describe it? It's going to die. And that is precisely what happens here in the human, uh, in the human counterpart. If we unplug ourselves, we're going to die. But as these texts reveal, God's love, which also is a, a, a law of nature, right? Love, don't kid yourself, all right? Don't mistake yourself. God's love, it's not our puny little human love. God's love is a force of nature. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we see that he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
So the attributes of God's character, they are precisely that. They're attributes of who he is. God doesn't have love. God is love. You and I, we have love. We can feel love. We can practice love, but we are not the source of love. The Bible makes it clear that not only, is, not only does God have love, not only does he exert love and exercise love, he does these things because he is love. So I hope that you see here the difference in these realities. This is masterfully ca captured here in Psalm chapter 89, verse 38 through 46, where the psalmist, he confronts the harsh consequences of Israel's disobedience, but he remains hopeful of God's enduring mercy. Look at what... Um, it says here, Psalm 89, 38 through 46, where it says, But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all of his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not sustained him in the battle. Again, you see the consequences here. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. This is David in prophetic uh, terminology, acknowledging what was going to happen to Israel throughout time. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? So again, in this context, the role of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah, it becomes central because he embodies the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It didn't happen through David. It didn't happen through his sons, through the kings that came after him, except the one king, the true king, Jesus Christ. And that's where Jesus becomes central because he, again, he embodies the fulfillment of this covenant, not through human achievement, but through divine intervention. Jesus's resurrection, friends, is the ultimate testament to the unbreakable nature of God's covenant. Because as we speak of, you know, the first covenant, the, the covenant to Abraham, the covenant to Noah, the covenant to Adam, the covenant to David, to the Israelites, friends, there's one covenant. It just changes its format as it's given and as it's extended, right? This covenant, they were promises. They were um, deals. They were God extending one hand, the human side extending the other hand. And the problem is that the human side would always slip. It could never grab hold of God's hand. And so what happens is that Jesus came, became a human, and from the divine side, you have God's arm extending, but now you do have a hand that can take hold of it and he can bridge the gap. That's what we find in Jesus Christ. So while you do find several different versions of this covenant, the everlasting covenant, friends, is exactly that. It's everlasting. It's eternal as God is eternal because the hand being extend, extended from God's part was always there. So it's interesting that in, in the Greek language, you have two words for new. Two words for new. One describes new of a different sort and new of a same sort. So imagine that you're buying a new car and you, you really liked your old car. So you go out and you buy a new car that is the same as the old one. It's, an, it's you know, you had an old, uh, you know, Corolla. Now you're going out and you're going to buy a new Corolla. It's still a Corolla, but it's just a new car, right? But let's say that you go out and you buy a motorcycle. That's a new vehicle altogether, absolutely new. God's covenant. God's covenant, it's new, but it's still the same covenant. I hope you understand what I'm saying. So 
Um, that's what we find here. And so the narrative that's woven through these Psalms, it reassures us of the unyielding nature of God's promises. Again, nothing here has to do with our promises. It has everything to do with his promises. These Psalms, they assure the believers of the continued relevance of the triumphs of his plan. It culminates in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, this narrative, not only it confirms the fulfillment of ancient prophecies, but it also offers a message of hope and of salvation to all believers. And that's how we go into Wednesday's lesson, which has the title, Eternal King of Unrivaled Power. This is the divine self-sacrificing shepherd. This is also the one who fulfills the covenant. And because of that, he is the eternal king of unrivaled power. The Psalms here on today's lesson, on Wednesday's lesson, especially Psalm chapter 2, chapter 110, Psalm 89, they offer us a majestic view of Jesus as king. These texts reveal the unique relationship between God and the Messiah. And it symbolizes the coronation of Jesus Christ as the eternal king. These are called Psalms of enthronization. Okay, so for example, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So I want you to understand, this is, this is typically, um, this was a, a coronation, an enthronization psalm proclaimed when a new king in Israel was uh, proclaimed king. And here we find the same thing being rendered when it comes to the Messiah. Again, a messianic psalm, a, a psalm of coronation, of enthronization. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So here Jesus is depicted as sitting at God's right hand. A position of unparalleled honor, unparalleled authority indicating his divine status. You know, oftentimes I, I stop to think what it must have been to the unfallen worlds, to the angels, to observe Jesus's life here in the world. Because when we, you know, from the human side, we see Jesus in the gospels as the man of suffering, the man of pains, as described in the book of Isaiah. Jesus was one with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we have this tendency of seeing Jesus and that truly so, rightly so, because that's how he revealed himself here in his incarnation. But we see Jesus as, you know, this man of sorrow, of pain. Jesus became human. We know human. We understand human. But imagine that from the other side. Imagine that from those who had seen him, who knew him as Michael, as the conquering Lord, the general of the heavenly host. Imagine what that must have meant to them. Now, maybe you're wondering why I use the word Michael. In, in scripture, we see that Michael, he appears few times. This title, this name appears few times. And he also always appears in terminology of divinity. He's worshipped. He's adored. And so, this is none other than Jesus Christ. Michael is the battle name of Jesus. And so, Again, here, that, that's what we find, right? So imagine those who knew him as such up in heaven, the holy, undefiled son of God, commander of the cosmos, the verb, right? That's what we find in John chapter one through four. And then in verse 14, we find that he, through him, everything was made. Without him, nothing that was made was made. He was there in the beginning with God and he was in the beginning God. He is God. 
but God, the word, the verb became flesh and dwelt among us. So do you see this, this duality? We can only perceive it from this side. They saw both sides. They witnessed it. And that's a privilege that we'll have when we get to heaven. But they witnessed it. So imagine this, this mind, you know, blowing moment where they remembered him there and they see him now here on earth as his helpless baby, as a child, as a 20-year-old, 25-year-old, as a 30-year-old man. This cognitive dissonance of seeing these two sides that aren't really fitting with each other. It must be something incredible. So I can't wait to get to heaven and, and see that, that duality, to see behind what we can't see right now and, and realize that. So this imagery of Jesus here at the right hand of God, it suggests this deep intertwining of the Messiah and the Lord himself. It blurs the line between divinity and humanity. Because in Christ we know that there's this phenomena where he is 100% God and 100% man. How do you even understand that? For us it's impossible right now. 100% God and 100% man. The Psalms also emphasize Christ's absolute victory over his enemies. It uses powerful imagery, powerful wording, like making enemies a footstool. It symbolizes his complete dominance. Friends, the enemy has no, no part in any of this. He's a defeated foe. He's a collector of defeats. And he knows it. And so here, Jesus' dominance, his authority, his triumph is clearly described. Yet, this rod of Christ, it originates from Zion. It's not just a symbol of terror to the enemies, but also of divine judgment and righteousness. It represents his unrivaled reign. You have to realize that in scripture, God's righteousness, God's judgment, it's a good thing. God's judgment is a good thing. We live in a time where judgment is seen as this horrible thing. You know, it's, 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 it's taboo. Don't you judge me. Who are you to judge me? But in scripture, God's judgment is a good thing. It's a good thing for those who are on his side. It's a good thing for those who take upon themselves his mantle of righteousness. It's not a good thing to the enemies of God who side themselves, who place themselves in that position. But God's judgment is a good thing to those who call on his name. And this narrative here, it culminates in the promise of an everlasting kingdom. And we find that, for example, prefigured in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, where, for example, in Daniel chapter 2, you have the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, the statue. And at the end of the whole depiction, you have this rock that comes and it breaks the statue that represents human history, obliterates it, and that rock covers the entirety of the globe. That's the everlasting kingdom of God. It comes to shatter human history with all of its cruelty, with all of its horrors, and it substitutes it with the unshakable kingdom of God. Friends, this portrayal of Jesus' ultimate victory, it provides a source of comfort, of hope. It assures us that in the end, good will triumph over evil, that justice will prevail, and that suffering will be no more. It's hard to see that right now. It's hard to live that reality right now because we live in such a horrible world. All we have to do is look around. Look at the wars. Look at the rumors of wars. Look at the hatred. Look at the corruption. Friends, we live in a broken world. This was not God's intention. This is not what was supposed to happen. But luckily, 
providentially, not luckily, God has revealed to us the end of the book. We've seen the end. We know the story. We know how it ends. And we don't have to despair. That's the beauty of scripture. Whoever knows their Bible doesn't have to be afraid, does not need to live under fear. Why? Because we know that this story ends well. We know that the good guy wins. Finally, in Thursday's lesson, we have the title, Eternal Priest in the Order of Melchizedek. I believe that this was studied two, um, two lessons ago. Uh, this very topic, I know because I covered it. So if you go back a few lessons, you'll see that there's a lot to be said about Jesus uh, being uh, or coming from the order of Melchizedek. But just to, to sum it up here in the context of the book of Psalms, um, with this title, the eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek, how this relates to the book of Psalms, particularly Psalm 110, verse 4 through 7, it gives us this unique perspective into Jesus' priesthood. Look at what it says. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the days of, or in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the, the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Friends, the priesthood stands, this priesthood stands out for its eternal nature. It's not something that will be overthrown, that will die off. Here, it's being described in the terms of an, an alignment with Melchizedek's order. Why? Because this distinguishes it from the Levitical order. So you'll see that throughout the Old Testament, you have this order of priests that came from Levi, right? One of Jacob's uh, sons, one of Jacob's children. And um, why, does Jesus have to, why does Jesus have to be compared coming from the, uh, the order of Melchizedek? Because this is completely outside the scope of everything that was represented, that was revealed in uh, or that, that the Levitical order meant everything. And it ended. The Levitical order, it ended. But being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, first of all, it represents an order that will never end. Secondly, it culminates with this imagery of Jesus as both king and priest. Just as Melchizedek, he was the king and the high priest of Salem in the Old Testament. That's where you get the word Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem city of peace. Before that, it was the city of Salem, as described in the Bible. And, um, and here Jesus, not only is a priest, he's also a king. There was a law in the Old Testament that a king could not be the high priest. A king could not be a priest. We see that Saul tried. That was one of his great crimes, but that he tried to uh, take upon himself the role of a priest in, in a few occasions. But here Jesus, he is described as being outside of the scope of that order. Unlike the traditional Israelite kings who were not Levitical priests, as I've just said, Jesus, he merges this role of king and priest, and it symbolizes his supreme authority in the universe. His priesthood is rooted in a superior covenant that's guaranteed by God's own oath. And that's found in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20 through 28. Look at what it says. And inasmuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with, with an oath 
by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. You see the quoting coming from the book of Psalms, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Remember what we talked about a covenant before. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for, for first for his own sins. Why? Because he had no sins. And then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of oath. Did Jesus have weakness? Not in this sense, not in the moral sense, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. This is our high priest. Unlike Human priests, Jesus' priesthood is unaffected by sin or by mortality. It offers a continuous intercession for humanity. This eternal priesthood, it promises a lasting reconciliation between God and his people. And it emphasizes something that Jesus himself, only Christ, could do as a compassionate and perfect mediator. This dual role of Jesus Christ as both king and priest, it is significant. It cannot be overlooked. Because not only does it assure us of a direct, unbreakable connection to heaven and to God, a direct connection to God, but also it offers us a deep source of hope and of comfort in our present life right now. What could we do without Jesus being our high priest and being our king? You see, friends, Christ's priesthood, Christ's priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, it breaks new ground, setting him apart from any king or priest from Israel's history. And so this priesthood, it promises the eventual obliteration, abolition of evil and sin, not just in the hearts of individuals, but also in the world. Psalm chapter 2 and chapter 110 highlight this universal scope of Jesus' righteous rule. It underscores every nation and every ruler's subjection to his divine judgment. Jesus' triumph is complete. It already is complete. The book of Hebrews reveals it as such. The book of Hebrews is extremely beautiful because it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's this duality between, or it's, this, it's an argument being given by the author of Hebrews between the old covenant that had been fulfilled in Christ and how much better this new covenant is. So that's what you're finding. It's this contrast between the old and now what is much better in Jesus. And so Jesus' remarkable royal priesthood, it makes an absolute claim on our obedience and on our trust. It assures us of his eternal intercession and the fulfillment of God's promises. It calls us to respond with faith, with allegiance to his sovereign rule. I'd like to end our Sabbath school lesson here with a beautiful quote that comes from the, Desi the Desired of Ages, page 24 and 25. Look at what it says. By his humanity, Christ touched humanity. By his divinity, he lays hold upon the throne of God. 
As the son of man, he gave us an example of obedience. As the son of God, he gives us power to obey. It was Christ who from the bush on Mount Horeb spoke to Moses saying, I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. This was the pledge of Israel's deliverance. So when he came in the likeness of men, he declared himself the I am. The child of Bethlehem, the meek and lowly savior is God manifest in flesh. And to us, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the living bread. I am the way, the truth and the life. All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. I am the assurance of every province. I promise, I am, be not afraid. Friend, I hope that the study of this lesson was a blessing to you. It's beautiful, beautiful scripture. Study it. It will make you wise. It will help you minister to those around you. I'd also like to invite you to take advantage of our free offer. Again, Hidden Truth. It will help you in the study of your lesson. It will be um, a companion to it. You could call the number 866-788-3966 and ask for the offer number uh, 832. If you're in North America, you can text SH109 to the number 40544. If you're outside, you can go to study.aftv.org slash SH109 and you could get a digital download. I'd like to pray with you before we finish. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for this lesson that beautifully guided us in the understanding of Jesus and especially in his ministering to us here on earth, Lord. Thank you so much for the different perspectives that we get from the book of Psalms that help us understand him all the more. Allow us not only to read these things, but to apply them in our life. Bless us, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you, and I hope to see you again at the next Sabbath School Study Hour. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.